Life works the way God intends when we put Him first in every area of our lives. To help us live that life, God gave us the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are principles to live by, principles that bring our relationship to God and each other closer together. They're a way to understand how God wants us to live. These commandments help us love God and love others. The seventh commandment says to not commit adultery. Intimacy, one of the greatest gifts from God, can quickly turn into hurt, guilt, shame, and divorce. The hurt of sexual sin often cuts the deepest. And so God says, you shall not commit adultery. Well, it's good to be back with you guys this weekend, and if you've been here with us the last few weeks, you know that we're in a series that we're calling 10. It's uh, a series that's based on the Ten Commandments, and most of us, we just grew up with the Ten Commandments. There are a bunch of rules that we're supposed to obey, but we're learning they're actually more than that. Behind each one of these commandments, we're discovering that there's a relationship principle that can actually take us deeper in our relationship with God, deeper in our relationship with one another. And uh, you can tell we're coming down the home stretch because this weekend we've actually made it to the seventh commandment. Uh, it's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. It says, you shall not commit adultery. And we're going to discover over the next few minutes that the relationship principle behind this commandment is the principle of intimacy. Because this is what I can tell you. If you get involved in an adulterous relationship, it is definitely going to impact your relationship with God. But I'm telling you, it's going to have an impact on your relationship, not only your spouse, but your children, maybe your neighbors, your coworkers. So it's very, very important that we understand this commandment. Now, let me just say this. I realize that I am look, I'm talking this weekend to a lot of people uh, at different stages of life. Some of you that are watching right now, you're married. Maybe, maybe you've been married a long time. Laura and I have been married 41 years. Maybe that describes you. You've been married for years. You can't remember not being married. Others of you, maybe you've only been married 41 days, maybe even 41 hours, but, but many of you are married. And then at the same time, I realize that a lot of you watching right now, you're single. Uh, maybe you've never been married. Maybe you're divorced. Statistics say that you will probably get married one day. And so it's very, very important that you pay attention this weekend. There really is something here for everyone, regardless of what stage you're in in life. I'm also aware of the fact that some of you uh, that are watching, you have been dealt a devastating blow because you married someone who broke this seventh commandment. Or maybe you're watching and you're actually in the middle of disobeying God. You're right in the middle of an adulterous relationship. You're right now breaking the seventh commandment. Maybe you're right on the verge and you're thinking about breaking this commandment. Then I guess there's a lot of you this weekend who are thinking there's no circumstance under which I would break this commandment. And if that's you, let me just say I applaud you, but I can promise you this, nobody is above this. Now having said all of that, I just want you to understand my goal this weekend is to encourage every one of you, every person watching to have a strong and biblical understanding of this seventh commandment and why it's so important in our lives. Now, whenever we talk about adultery, we're, we're talking about a category of sin known as sexual immorality. And let me just say this about sexual immorality. A lot of people believe that because God doesn't list certain things that are wrong in the Bible, Jesus doesn't mention certain things that are wrong, that it's okay to do those things. But you gotta understand the biblical definition of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any sex between anybody outside the context of a committed husband and wife in a committed marriage relationship. 
Anything outside of that falls into the category of sexual immorality. Now, I say that because I want to begin by make, making my point here. And my point is this. God came up with the idea of sex. God created sex. It was his gift to us. In fact, sometime in eternity past, I imagine God sitting on his throne thinking, wow, I have got the coolest idea, right? And God came up with the idea of sex. And we're taught in the book of Genesis that we didn't just climb out of a pond of slime one day and stand up and eventually go to work on Wall Street. We read that God created us. And when God created us, God actually created us male and female. And not only that, God also designed the male and the female forms to fit perfectly together. It didn't just happen. It was part of God's plan. That's how he created us. And he created us that way so that we would be able to enjoy the intimacy and the pleasure of sex. And God even provided the venue in which we could utilize this gift. It's marriage between a husband and wife in a committed marriage relationship. That was God's plan. That's how it began. It was all God's idea. But here's the problem. If you're God and you created sex, and now you're sitting up in heaven and you're watching all the devastation caused by the people that you love abusing this gift, all the children growing up with all kinds of confusion because of the abuse of this gift. All the marriages that have been destroyed, you're watching it because of the abuse of this guilt, uh, of this gift. All the hurt and the shame and the guilt that's been caused by the abuse of this gift. In other words, you're God and you love the people that you created. You have an incredible plan for each of their lives, but they keep missing that plan because of the abuse of this gift. What would you say to the people you created about this issue of sexual immorality? This idea of any sex outside a committed husband and wife in the context of a marriage relationship. Well, let me show you. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. He said, flee sexual immorality. And you read that, and it seems very, very simple. Like, any questions whatsoever, just flee sexual immorality. In other words, when you find yourself in that danger zone, you don't sit there and think, this could be dangerous. You don't see how close you can get to the fire without getting burnt. You don't sit around and analyze the situation. Paul says, because of what's at stake, you run, you flee, you get the heck out of Dodge. That's what he's saying, right? And he tells us why in the rest of verse 18. He says this, all other sins a man commits are outside the body. But he who sins sexually against his own but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now, Paul is just saying something here that we already know, and it's this. There's something unique about sexual sin. I mean, we can pretend that it's the same as cheating on your golf score or, or cheating on an exam. We can, we can pretend it's the, the same as maybe stealing a pack of gum uh, or maybe jaywalking. But deep down inside, we know there's something unique. There's something special about sexual sin. I mean, think about it. Other sins, eventually, it seems like we can find forgiveness. It seems like we can kind of put it behind us and move forward. In fact, sometimes we look back at that period in our life, maybe years later, when we were involved in some kind of disobedience, some kind of sin, and we can even laugh at how stupid we were during that period of time. But I'm telling you, sexual sin is different. It affects you spiritually. It's going to impact you emotionally. It can affect you physically. In fact, it sticks to you like honey. And in some cases, a person will carry it with them all through life. And it's not that God doesn't forgive you. It's just sometimes it's so hard to forgive yourself. And I think that that's why God included this number seven commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. He wants us to understand it can be devastating on your life. 
But it's interesting, last weekend we talked about murder and we said nobody just gets up one weekend, one day and decides, hey, I think I'll commit murder today. And, and in the same way, nobody just wakes up one morning and decides, you know what, I think I'll commit adultery today. It doesn't happen that way. It's a process. There are stages. And so I want to talk about those stages this weekend. Let me just begin by saying this. Lust precedes adultery. That's the very first stage. Lust always precedes adultery. And I'm going to spend some time here because if this is true, then if we can keep from lusting, we can actually keep from committing adultery. And let me just say this about lust. When, when we think about the term lust, we always think of it in a negative term. Uh, that's not always the case. In fact, this Greek word in the New Testament that's translated lust, it, the word is epithemia. doesn't mean anything to you, right? But it's used all through the New Testament. And most of the time, it is used in a negative way. But there are a few occasions where this very same word, epithemia, lust, is used in a positive way. Sometimes the word isn't translated lust. Sometimes it's actually translated desire. For example, the Apostle Paul, he said, I desire, it's the same word, epithemia, I desire to go to heaven. Jesus used this word when he was talking about the Last Supper to the disciples. He said, I desire, again, the word epithemia that's usually translated lust, I desire to have this meal with you. The word literally means passion. It means to have a passion for other things. It could be you have a car, but you have a passion for a different car. You have a home, but you have a passion for a different home. Uh, you, have a, you, have a, you have a job, but you have a passion for a different job. That's literally what the word means. But when Satan turns our passion toward people and other individuals for the wrong reasons, then we've entered into the category of lust. And as I said, lust precedes adultery. Now, what are the negative impacts of lust? Because as I said, if we can avoid lust, we can avoid adultery. Well, first of all, you need to understand Lust is going to impact your relationship with God. It's going to affect that intimacy and that relationship you have with God. In fact, let me just expose a lie that a lot of people have when it comes to this idea of lust. I think a lot of people believe that as long as you don't cross the line, you can lust and have thoughts all you want to, but as long as you don't cross the line and actually have sex with someone, that there are no repercussions, there are no consequences to lust. But you got to understand that when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about sometimes it's an inward motivation, and then other times it talks about sin, and it's an outward action. For example, the word uh, that the Bible uses for sin, one of the words is the word transgression. And this word transgression literally means to step over a boundary. In other words, when we transgress, we step over a boundary. We, we, we cross the line, and it's an action. But there's also a second word that the Bible uses for sin, and it's the word iniquity. And iniquity is an inward motivation towards sin, but you gotta understand it's also sin. For example, greed would be an inward motivation. But if it crosses the line so much that you steal, now it's become an outward action. Uh, hate would be an inward motivation. It's, it's an iniquity that's in your heart. But if it, if it crosses the line, it could become murder, and that would be an outward action. In the very same way, lust in our hearts is iniquity. But understand, sexual immorality would fall into the category of a transgression, you've crossed the line. But again, a lot of people believe that as long as you don't actually cross the line, there aren't any consequences. But let me just say this, if it's in your heart, it is going to affect your relationship with God in a negative way. It's going to affect the impact of the intimacy that God designed and created for you to have with him. But not only that, second, lust affects your relationship with the people in your life. 
And I know we're talking about adultery, but we're also talking about sexual immorality. There's probably been a question that I've been asked a million times since I've been a pastor. You've probably heard the question also, and it's usually asked by a couple that's having sex, but they're not married. And the question is simply this. If we love each other and we're going to get married anyway, what difference does a piece of paper make? And sometimes it's if we love each other, if we're committed, what difference does a piece of paper make? And the answer to that question is none. I'm telling you, the marriage license, it makes no difference whatsoever. What makes a difference is whether or not God's blessing is on your life. And so when God tells us to do something, whether it's a commandment, whether it's a principle, a truth, or a precept, when God tells us to do something, we have to do it. And he's not telling us to do something or not do something because he's a prude or an old fuddy-duddy. It's not that he doesn't want us to have fun. It's that God doesn't want us to screw up our lives. He doesn't want us to impact that relationship, the intimacy that he created us to have with him. So what I want to do over the next couple of minutes, I want to speak to those of you who are single, who aren't married, and I want to show you, I want to explain to you having sex before you get married, how that could actually contribute to adultery taking place in your life once you get married. And it's because of this. All sexual immorality, and if you think about it, this is true. All sexual immorality opens the door to numerous sins in our life. Sins like deception, sins like manipulation, uh, sins like lying. For example, if, if you're a young couple and, and you're sexually involved, you don't normally tell your parents that you're sexually active. You don't do that. You know, when, when you're going out and your parents say, hey, what are you guys going to do tonight? You don't normally say, well, we thought we would sneak around somewhere and, and find a place that we can have sex. And your parents say, oh, okay, fine. Just be home by midnight. That's not usually the way it goes down. What happens is you lie about where you're going. You lie about what you're going to do. And when you come home and your parents say, how, are your e how was your evening? Uh, you lie about what you did and you lie about where you went. My point is, you learn how to be deceptive. And then as a result, this is what happens. See, when you sneak around to have sex, you are developing an appetite that God never intended for you to develop. And it's because, see, when you sneak, you're actually getting an adrenaline rush from the sneaking around. But then one day you finally get married and you don't have to sneak around anymore. And what often happens is this. About 12, maybe 18, 24 months into the marriage, you wake up one day and you realize there doesn't seem to be as much passion. It's a little boring. You feel like you're in a rut. There's no sizzle anymore. And it's because, see, you created an appetite before you got married that God never intended for you to have. And that's why maybe a man can get into a conversation with work and then it turns into a little bit of flirting. But you know what's really happening? What's really happening is this guy in this conversation flirting and it seems so innocent. What really is happening is he's getting an adrenaline rush because he is fulfilling an appetite that he created before he ever got married. And then often, over time, eventually it turns into an affair. And to have an affair, what do you have to do? Well, you have to be deceptive. You have to sneak around. I mean, it's like the best kept secret in town. And so he's, he's satisfying, think about this, he's satisfying this appetite that the two of you created before you ever got married. And as he's having sex with this new person, see, he begins to feel and sense the sizzle with her that he used to have with you before he married you, and he associates that feeling, he associates that, ceiling, that, 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 that sizzle with love, and he begins to believe that he loves her and that he doesn't love you. And this is how the cycle works. 
he'll divorce you and he'll marry her. And now what happens? Well, <laughs> they don't have to sneak around anymore. It's just life. You go to work, you pay the mortgage, you get the kids to soccer practice, you make sure the bills are taken care of. It's just life. And so again, after a period of time, he'll say to her, it's just not the same. I don't feel the passion. I don't feel the sizzle. And guess what? He'll begin to sneak around again. And I don't mean this in a judgmental way, but this would explain why some of you watching this weekend, maybe, maybe you've been married three, four, five times. It may explain why you've messed up in this area numerous times in your marriage. It's because, see, you've been, you've been trying to satisfy this appetite that you created that God never, ever intended for you to have. And so that's why you got to understand. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, don't even go there. Flee from sexual immorality. It's like you have no idea the impact that it can have on your life. For example, it's going to impact you emotionally. When I deal with couples, deal with individuals who, who have been involved in sexual immorality, the words I usually hear are like, I feel used, I feel deceived, I feel abused. I remember when I was in seminary, we had a guy one time come into one of our counseling classes and he talked about the fact that you can have sex one time, one time before you get married, maybe in high school, maybe in college, and it will impact your sexual relationship with your married partner. So it's gonna affect you emotionally. And then if you have multiple sexual partners, there's this idea of comparison. And maybe the person you eventually married didn't measure up to a few of your former sexual partners. That's gonna create tension. That's gonna create stress in the marriage. There's unrealistic expectations. But God says, you're just not ready for this. And so don't even go there. Understand what's at stake. Flee it, get away from it. And maybe, maybe right now you're, you're feeling a little guilty. And I don't mean you to feel guilty. I certainly don't want you to feel condemned because maybe you are involved in a sexual relationship. You're not married. Maybe you have been. And you're like, Mike, what do you do? You can't unring that bell. Well, that's true. You can't unring the bell, but you can draw the line in the sand and you can move forward. And you do that by, first of all, confessing to God. And confessing is simply this. You agree with God. In other words, see, you've been in disagreement with God because God said, don't do this, and you felt it was all right to do this. Now you're confessing, saying, God, I agree with you, and then, then you repent. And it's interesting, this word repent, it's obviously a biblical church word, right? It literally means you do a 180. Before you repent, you're doing life the way you want to do life. But once you realize you're out of bounds, you do a 180 and you start to do life the way God wants you to do life. In other words, you bring your life into alignment with God's word. So you confess, you agree with God that it's wrong, and then you turn your life around and you start living God's way. And what you want to do is you want to close that door because you don't leave any door open in your life where when you get married, Satan can come in and begin to go to work. Just talked to a couple this week. Came to Hope, living together, found Christ at Hope in a small group, and no one had to tell them. Just in studying God's Word, they realized that living together wasn't God's plan for them. They already have a house together. And they shared with me how they made the decision to move into separate bedrooms, and now they're making the plans to get married. See, that's what God is looking for. You can't undo the past but you have great control how you move into the future. So understand, lust precedes adultery, sexual immorality. Not love, not love, lust. So here's the next question. What precedes lust? Well, looking precedes lust. And now you're thinking, wait a minute, we can't have sex, we can't even look, right? Let me tell you, 
Jesus has got my back on this one. Matthew chapter five, verse 28. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. By the way, that goes to intent. He doesn't say anyone who looks at a woman. He says anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. Now, just so you know, in the first century, there were a group of very, very religious men who, had th- who took Jesus's words to the extent they would not look at a female. They literally, when they walked through the streets, they would stare at the ground and walk, and, and they were bumping into walls and to camels and to all kinds of things. And these guys, they were actually known as the bruised and bleeding ones, right? That is not what Jesus is saying. It's not realistic to think that you're never going to look at someone of the opposite sex. But Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully as the intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. A couple of things you should notice about this verse. First of all, it refutes the idea that if you don't transgress, if you don't cross the line, that you're not sinning. Jesus says, if it's in your heart, it's sin, okay? If it's in your heart, you're guilty. But then notice that Jesus gives us the progression in this verse. He says, whoever looks to lust, by the way, it's interesting, uh, men and women, we're different. I guarantee you as women, whenever you see your husband looking at a woman, you're assuming he's looking to lust. I mean, Laura and I have had this conversation. She assumes just because we're men, we're looking to lust. But one day I caught her checking out a man. You know what she told me? I said, I saw you checking out that guy. She said, I'm appreciating him. See, that's a big difference, right? So Laura's kind of got it down. When you look to someone, right? He says, if you look to lust, this is what Jesus says, you've already committed adultery. So the progression is right here in this verse. You look, you lust, you commit adultery. And so I guess the takeaway is if you don't want to commit adultery, if you don't want to be involved in sexual immorality, then don't let lust into your heart. And if you don't want lust in your heart, you got to be careful how you look. In fact, you should be asking questions like, what am I looking at? What am I allowing into my heart? What am I allowing into my life? And believe it or not, this is actually something that you have control over. Job said this in Job 31 verse 1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. So it is a decision that you can make as a spiritual discipline that you can develop. Uh, Years ago, Billy Graham made this comment. He says, it's not the first look that gets you, it's the second. And we understand that, we understand what he's saying. And, and I actually used that years ago in a message and I had a guy come up to me afterwards and he says, Mike, I really learned something in your message this weekend. I said, what's that? He says, he says, you can't take a second look. And I said, hey, you were paying attention, right? And he said, so you take a really, really, really long first look. I'm like, no, 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 you can't do that either, right? Because he's saying, he's trying to find the loophole. It's like, see, for an alcoholic, you can't even have one drink. For some of you, you can't even have one look because it's gonna, it's gonna create lustful thoughts. You can come to terms with this. Now, men, let's just be honest. Most of us have a problem looking. We're going to look at members of the opposite sex. I'll never forget I was in my office one day and a wife was challenging her husband, complaining because she thought he was always looking at women. And he looked at me and he said, Mike, do you ever look at women? I'm like, hey, I'm a minister, I'm not dead. Of course we look at people. Here's the difference. Laura knows that she has the power to hold me accountable in this area. And so if she sees me, if we're on vacation, and if she sees me looking at a woman, and she senses I'm not looking at her the right way, she'll say, don't look, don't look. Now, it can backfire. I'll never forget one time we were in Hawaii celebrating an anniversary, and we were sitting out by the pool, and I am engrossed in a Jack Reacher novel. And I'm telling you, anybody who knows me, if I'm in the middle of Jack Reacher novel, everything else in the world stops. That's all I'm focused on. So I am reading my book, and she, 
out of the blue says, wow, look at that woman's swimsuit. And I'm telling you, it was made out of dental floss. And I'm like, baby, this is on you. I was minding my own business. So ladies, you have to be really, really careful there. But understand, looking leads to lust and lust leads to adultery. Now, I wanna try to wrap this up, if you can, uh, a message like this on a positive note. And I wanna give you some suggestions that I think will help keep you from breaking this seventh commandment. Let me just give them to you. Here's the first one, push the clock forward. When you find yourself in that situation where you're even remotely tempted to break this commandment, push the clock forward and think about the consequences. Think about the results. Think about, man, if I really follow through with this, how's that gonna impact your spouse? How's that gonna impact your children? How's that gonna impact your reputation? So just pause long enough and think clearly and push the clock forward. Here's the second one. Recognize your times of vulnerability. And they're different for all of us. It could be like when life is just good. Life is going great. You know, that happened with King David. David, during his reign, I'm telling you, he, was, he never lost a battle. Think about that. He, he had expanded the borders of Israel. Uh, the nation's, its wealth, its economy was incredible. And at a time when David should have been away at war with his soldiers, he decided to stay back at the palace. And he went out on his rooftop and he looked over and he saw Bathsheba. He looked, he lusted. He had her brought back to the palace and he committed adultery with her. It was easy time. Life was good. C.S. Lewis once said this, the long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity are excellent campaigning weather for the devil. Maybe that's it for you. Maybe it's when you're exhausted. Maybe you've noticed it's when you travel. Maybe you've noticed that when you have some marriage problems that you're not dealing with, that this becomes an issue. Let me tell you what I know. Satan knows you better than you know yourself. And he knows exactly when you're vulnerable and he knows exactly how to push your button. He knows exactly what kind of bait to float across your nose to make sure that you will go after that bait. And so if Satan knows, it's wise to know for yourself also. Know those times that you're vulnerable. Here's the third one, continue to work on your marriage. I actually think one of the most effective ministries that we have here at Hope is a ministry we call Reengage. And uh, you can go to gethope.net, you can find out more about it. But I'm telling you, Reengage is an incredible ministry and couples all over the spectrum, some that are, 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 some that are literally, they're, they're rock, their marriage is on the rocks. You have other couples, they're just in for a tune-up. But incredible stories of how God is working and healing and transforming marriages. You, you may want to check that out. But I will tell you this. It takes a lot of work to have a good marriage. And I'll also tell you, you're never going to get to the point where you have a perfect marriage. It just takes work. It just takes one little act after another. And then after a period of time, those acts begin to build upon one another till your marriage gets stronger and stronger. So make the commitment that you're going to build a strong marriage, you'll be glad you did that. And then here's the fourth one, obey the 10 commitments of marriage. Not commandments, the, the 10 commitments of marriage. And every one of these come from marriage counseling that I've done over the years. Things that I've heard, things that I've learned from people that have broken this seventh commandment. So let me just give these 10 commitments to you. Here's the first one. You shall have no other human relationship before your spouse. And let me just say that would include your kids. I think one of the biggest challenges for marriages today is our families have become so kid-centric instead of parent-centric that the kids kind of sit on the throne of the family and everybody, you know, mom and dad kind of, you know, they revolve and around them and make sure they, they get everywhere they want to go and get to experience everything they didn't get to experience. And as a result, there's very little time and very little energy left over 
for mom and dad to invest in their relationship. And it probably explains why the fastest growing rate of divorce in America is couples that have been married over 20 years. And I think it's because after you raise the kids and they leave home, you look at each other and think, good gracious, we don't even know each other anymore. So understand, you shall have no other human relationship before your spouse. Second, remember to date and keep it fresh. I had put down, remember to date and keep it hot, but I tried to clean it up because it's church, right? Remember to date and keep it fresh. And I normally, when I say this to young couples, they're like, Mike, you don't understand, we can't afford it. Well, you know what, get a coupon, go to Jersey Mike, get a sub, go to the park, just spend some time together. I've had other parents say, well, we don't go out because our kids are weird with babysitters. Let me tell you something about your kids. If they're weird with a babysitter, they're probably just weird, okay? They're gonna be okay, they're going to survive, but you've got to do this. Here's the number three. Remember your anniversary so that your life may be long on the earth. It amazes me how many men I can run into sometime and they'll look like, you know, kind of downcast. And I'm like, what happened? Oh, I forgot my anniversary yesterday. That's just stupid. I mean, don't do things like that. Make sure you remember it so your life will be long on the earth. Number four, you shall not be apathetic towards your marriage. We kind of have a saying here at Hope, what you did to get them is what you do to keep them. And so you can never just throw it into cruise control. Here's another one. Verse five, or number five, you shall not search for old sweethearts on social media. Number six, you shall not ride in a car alone with a member of the opposite sex. We actually have that as a staff policy here at Hope Community Church. None of our staff are allowed to get in a car and go even from one campus to the other campus with a member of the, it's just a boundary, a member of the opposite sex. Here's another one. You shall not eat alone with a member of the opposite sex. Number eight, you shall not have a trainer that's a member of the opposite sex. Number nine, you shall not work late with members of the opposite sex. And number 10, you shall not share the intimate details of your marriage with a member of the opposite sex. And I know what some of you are thinking. This, I, this, I feel like a Puritan. You'd have to be a Puritan to live this way. This is so extreme. This is so over the top. It's kind of ridiculous. But the reality is it comes down to this question. To what degree are you willing to go to protect what is most important to you? Let's put it in the context of this message. To what degree are you willing to go to protect your marriage? Because here's the deal. We all know people who have made a huge mess of their lives in this area. And this is what we've all heard over and over again after the fact. I would do anything to be able to go back in time and undo what I did. So really what they're saying is this. On the other side of the morality line, it is amazing the extremes to which a person is willing to go to somehow fix the mess that they've created. Well, if that's the case, here's my question. Why not be extreme now instead of finding yourself in a place where you wish you had been extreme? Why not just be extreme now instead of getting that place, you're looking back like, I wish I'd have taken more protective measures. I wish I would have been more extreme. In other words, if the consequences are extreme, why not make some extreme decisions now? See, really what it basically boils down to is this. We either have extreme regret or we have extreme standards. We either have extreme regret or we have extreme boundaries. Now, what do you do if you've broken this seventh commandment? Well, as I said earlier, you confess, you repent, you bring it into the light. I love what it says in James 5, 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. At the end of the day, that's what we want. We, we want that spiritual and relational healing. And I would just tell you this, 
Every time I have to address this topic, there are always a lot of people that come clean. Do you know why? Because we're all human. And humans have a tendency to fall in this area. So let me just say this. If you're watching and you're the offended party and your spouse wants to come clean, it may be very, very hard for you to hear that confession. But as painful as hearing it may be, let me just say, you, you are taking the first step to God doing something amazing, something wonderful, something miraculous in your life. So I would just encourage you, at least give God the chance. Give him room to work to restore that intimacy between you and your spouse. And let me just say this, if you're the offending party, take advantage of this crisis to restore your intimacy with God. My guess is this, the, pro the reason you probably got into this situation is because your intimacy had, with God had been broken down. And I promise you this about our Heavenly Father. He's a loving God. And he's a God of incredible grace. And he's a God of incredible redemptive power. And one of the things I love about our church is not that people have committed adultery, <laughs> but we have hundreds and hundreds of couples that have been down this road who can attest to the fact God is faithful and loving and kind and he can restore. I know this is a tough topic, especially if you're in the middle of it right now. We want you to know here at Hope we love you. We care about you. I, there was so much prayer that went into this message this week just getting ready for this because I knew, I knew that it was going to stir up a lot of emotions and a lot of junk in a lot of people's lives. I want you to know we're here for you. And if we can help you in any way, you can contact us at gethope.net. We know that we can't get together and we know there's all this isolation and social distancing, but we will make sure, we will get on the phone with you, we will Zoom with you, we will get you in touch with counselors who can help you walk down this road together. And I believe that God can do something amazing in your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for being faithful, even when we're not. And Father, this is just a reality of life. It's unfortunate, but that's the world we live in. And I pray right now for those that are considering breaking the seventh commandment that you would just stop them right now. That maybe this time together has been a, just a cold dose of reality. I pray for those that are in the middle of an adulterous relationship right now that you would not condemn them but convict them of their wrong. And that this will not get them where they want to go and that they will confess and repent, that they will come clean. And then, Father, I pray for those who would find themselves in the category of being a victim. That as we've talked about the last few weeks, and maybe in some situations that the marriages have already ended, but there's still that anger and that bitterness that you would help them realize the freedom that comes in forgiving, of letting the offense go, of sending it away, of realizing that there's nothing that that spouse could do to ever come back and undo what has been done. So making the decision to just cancel the debt. 
Father, may we all remember that none of us are in a position to judge. We all have our Achilles heel. We all have our weaknesses. And Father, as those around us are experiencing this turmoil, may we figure out how instead of judging, coming alongside and loving and encouraging to bring relationships back into the place where you would have them to be. You're a God of healing and grace. And we call on that right now. And we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.